This Jericho in verse 1 that he is passing through is only 15 miles from Jerusalem where he will hang on a cross in just a couple of weeks. So we're getting closer to why Jesus came to earth ultimately. And we have seen throughout the Gospel of Luke that there has been a recurring phrase that Jesus has used as the servant of God to his followers. He keeps saying, I must go to Jerusalem. He always had his eye on Jerusalem. That was always the goal. That was his destiny. That's why he ultimately came. Certainly his ministry has been filled with teaching and healing and miracles and ministry and compassion and all of that. But ultimately, none of that would have the meaning and impact if it wouldn't have been culminated by his death, burial, and resurrection. So I want you to notice here, in the first ten verses, the purpose of God's servant. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. The word Jericho, this name Jericho, means a place of fragrance. And that was certainly uh, an apt title for this town because it was an oasis. It was a resort. It was a place where wealthy people went on vacation in Jesus' day. Um, And so it was a really nice place to be. And, and the flowers and, and the shrubs and the trees and everything that would have been blooming this time of year, it, it would have just been literally a place of fragrance as he passed through it. But the Bible says in verse 2, a man named Zacchaeus was there. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now let's remember about the chief tax collectors. First of all, there, there were levels of tax collectors in those days. And tax collectors for the Roman government were despised. We're not overstating it to say they were hated by the Jews. Many of them, like Zacchaeus, were Jews themselves, who basically were employed by the Roman government to exact taxes from the Jewish people. And being a chief tax collector, he took the biggest cut. You know, it went up the line, if you will. And so Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector, and he was abounding in material resources. That's what the word rich means. And notice in verse 3, he was trying to get a look at Jesus. He was seeking to discover something about Jesus. There was something that he had heard about Jesus, and he was interested. He, He was what we would call A seeker. He wanted to know more about Jesus. But the Bible says he was a short man and could not see over the crowd. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him because Jesus was going to pass that way. He was also a man that was pretty creative. He was a man that had some ingenuity to him. If he was short that he couldn't see over people, one thing he could do was outrun them to the next sycamore tree to be able to climb up and see Jesus from a good vantage point. Now, another phrase I want you to focus on is that phrase, going to pass that way. That that goes back to last week and and that whole idea, and we're going to see it again tonight, of 
There's, there's moments when Jesus is passing through. There, there are times where God is drawing us. And, and there are specific times where, you know, God is, is certainly speaking to us in, in an even an unusual way. And we have a unique opportunity, if you will, with God. That was certainly true of Zacchaeus. Because if he would have let this opportunity pass by, if he would have let Jesus pass through Jericho and never really tried to see him in a greater way, he would have never seen him because in two weeks, Jesus would have been dead. So when Jesus came to that place, verse five, he looked up. Jesus now is the one that took the initiative. Yes, Zacchaeus was seeking, but Jesus was the one who took the initiative. He's the one who looked up into that tree and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down quickly. Notice that Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name. (laughs) Jesus knows everyone's name. Jesus is the Son of God. And the Bible says, Jesus said, I want you to come down quickly because I must stay at your house today. Must is a really interesting key word. It means it's necessary. Jesus is saying, it is necessary for me to come to your home today, Zacchaeus. So he came down quickly and he welcomed Jesus joyfully. The word welcome means to receive a guest into your home, to grant them access. And notice when he granted Jesus access into his life, what corresponded to that or accompanied that was joy. Principle. When you and I invite Jesus in to our home, into our life, into anything, one of the things that's going to accompany us inviting Jesus in and giving him greater access is greater joy. The greater access we give to Jesus in our lives, the greater joy will accompany it. And when the people saw it, they all complained. Gee, people haven't changed much in 2,000 years, have they? The word means to murmur, to grumble. You know, the murmur from Jesus and what's in, you know. And I want to stop here and, and say this, because this is a great time to stop and say this. One of the things you learn from studying any of the Gospels and studying the life of Christ and studying the ministry of Christ, and even here, and I hope this will be an encouragement to you, is that much of Jesus's life and ministry was misunderstood. Don't be discouraged when people don't understand. When they misunderstand you and what God is leading you to do. Don't think that just because you're doing God's will that everyone around you is just going to, you know, embrace it and support it. That, That may not be true at all. But if you really believe God is leading, that's the most important thing. Jesus' ministry was always accompanied by misunderstanding. Notice, they said, this Jesus, he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Wow. Can I say, I'm so glad Jesus is willing to fellowship with sinners. 
By the way, there's different words for sinner in the New Testament. This is, a, this is a word that means one who is devoted to sin, one who is especially wicked. In other words, they're saying, you know, they, they sort of rated sin and rated sinners, and they're saying, well, he's the chief tax collector, you know. How in the world could Jesus go and be a guest at his home? But notice in verse 8, and I think Jesus here and Luke is condensing a lot of things. I, I don't think, you know, we can say all this necessarily happened in a few minutes. I think it probably was in the course of Jesus staying and dwelling at Zacchaeus' house throughout the day. That Zacchaeus, verse 8, stopped. Very key word. The word in the Greek language means to make a stand. A stand that is not wavering, a stand that is not hesitant. In other words, it was a defining moment. Whatever time, whatever conversation, whatever interaction Jesus had with Zacchaeus, he came to a place where he realized that he needed Jesus Christ as his Savior. And he embraced Jesus as his Savior and realized that Jesus changes lives, that Jesus transforms lives, that if Jesus comes into a life, my life, your life, no one's life will stay the same. My perspective will be different. My values will be different. My priorities will be different. And that's exactly what is happening here in very condensed form in this passage. Because Zacchaeus says to the Lord, look, Lord, in a sense, he's realizing how he's lived his life up to this point and that he needs to change things because God is changing him from the inside out. He's not doing this to become a Christian. He's not doing this to make God love him anymore. This is evidence that God has come into his life and his life is being transformed. Again, I say, Jesus changes lives. Jesus transforms lives. The gospel is God's life-changing message. And if one truly embraces Jesus and one truly embraces the gospel, their life will never be the same. That's why he says, Lord, half of my possessions I now give to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone, really he knows he has. Of anything, I'm paying back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, again, not because of what Zacchaeus had done, not because of a work that Zacchaeus did, but because Zacchaeus was evidencing real salvation, genuine salvation. That Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this household. Today. See, we don't have to wait till we die to find out whether we're saved or not. We can know we are saved right now. Salvation begins the moment we accept Christ as our Savior. And then we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord after that. But salvation is something we know on this side of eternity. We don't have to wait till we die. And Jesus went on to say, because he too is a son of Abraham. And here's the purpose of God's servant. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That's his purpose. And if, if we're following Jesus... And his purposes begin to become our purposes. 
then we should at some point in our spiritual growth begin to seek the lost as well. The word seek here means to aim at, to strive after. In other words, there should be some type of burden that, that begins to build in our lives for the lost, for people without Jesus. There should be some intentionality on our part to seek the lost in some way and take God's life-changing message to the world and let them know about our Savior and what a difference He can make in our lives. This is the purpose of God's servant. This should be one of our purposes as God's servant as well. To pray for the lost. To take those opportunities to share God's word with the lost. To live a life of integrity and character before the lost. We're going to talk about that Sunday. Living a life that captivates people without God. It's all part of God's purposes. Then beginning in verse 11, we have the warning of God's servant. While the people were listening to these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem now and because they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. They thought that if Jesus truly was the Messiah, he was going to walk into Jerusalem He was going to overthrow the Roman government. He was going to set up his earthly kingdom and he was going to begin to reign with the rod of iron. And they totally misunderstood that that was going to be the second coming. That the first coming of Christ, he was going to come and suffer and die for our sins. And I think the reason why also Jesus needed to clarify some things is because they heard what Jesus said to Zacchaeus. Today, salvation has come to your household. And so they're thinking, salvation has come? Deliverance has come? God's salvation has come? Well, then if it's come as we understand it, that means the kingdom has come. Therefore, Jesus said to them, I want to share a parable to illustrate something. He said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. The kingdom, by the way, was something that he was going to take because it was his own to take. And the key is that he wasn't going to stay. He was going to return. So he summons 10 of his slaves or servants and he gave them. He entrusted to them. He committed to them 10 minas and said to them, do business with these until I come back. In other words, I'm leaving for a time. I think we all get the picture. Jesus in a few weeks is going to ascend back to heaven. One day, he's going to receive what is rightfully his. He's going to receive a literal, physical, visible kingdom on earth. But until that time, his kingdom is going to be, in a sense, visible through the lives of his followers. His kingdom is still here, but it's not going to come as the Jews thought until, obviously, even after our lifetime. But Jesus says, here's what I want my servants to do in the meantime. Every one of my servants is going to be entrusted with things. We've talked already about stewardship and the importance of it, as Jesus taught throughout the Gospel of Luke. And one day, the Bible says, Jesus is going to return, and we're going to be accountable for our stewardship and how we've managed things. This is very similar to the parable of the talents that Jesus gives in another place. 
And Jesus says, here's what I want my servants to focus on while I'm going before I return. Verse 13, I want them to do business until I come back. It means to be occupied. It means to be focused is what it means. Take what I have given you, what I've entrusted to you, and focus on it, and be absorbed in it, and be occupied with it, and make gains in it. We're going to get to that in a minute. But notice now in verse 14, Jesus says, but his citizens hated him, detested him. Not his servants, but citizens. I think these represent, in a sense, the Jewish nation, especially the religious leaders that were rejecting Jesus. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to be king over us. We certainly are going to see that in a couple weeks where they say crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. We need to ask ourselves, do we truly want Jesus to be the king of our life? Not just our savior. Not just our deliverer. Not just the one who rescues us. But do we really want him to be the king or Lord of our lives? Verse 15, when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he summoned these slaves to whom he had given the money. He wanted to know how much they had gained or earned by trading. See, Jesus expects his servants to gain something from what he's given them. To not sit idly by with the gifts and talents and abilities and opportunities that he's given and not gain anything. He expects us to use what he's given us so that we can multiply and gain what he's, what he's given us so that it adds even more. So the first one came before him and said, Sir, your mina has made or gained ten minas more. And the king said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, you will have authority over ten cities. couple things. Notice something very important. The king expected his servants to take his word literally and seriously. That's important. If we're going to be a true servant of God, we've got to learn to take the word of God literally and seriously. He really is coming back. <laughs> We really are going to have to give an account. We really are going to have to give an account of our stewardship and how we have managed the resources, the opportunities, the gifts, the abilities, the talents that he's given us. He really is going to do that. And yet notice that Jesus, the king, commends the servant for being faithful. For being able to be relied upon, to be dependable. And even though he gained 10 minus from the one that he was given, notice the greater reward. Notice that in the kingdom, in eternity, Jesus is going to put him over 10 cities. It shows us that the reward of God and the blessing of God far outweighs what we would maybe equate with our faithfulness. And that's why I share with Christians all the time, don't ever forget that your Christian life and how you live it for God is, is going to determine your role and responsibility in God's kingdom throughout eternity. Because He's going to base it, just like here, on the faithfulness of His servants while He's gone before He returns. 
Verse 18, the second one came and said, Sir, your mina has made five minas, a little bit less than the first. But still the king said to him, You're to be over five cities. Then another slave came and said, Sir, here is your mina I put away. I literally clung to it or adhered to it for safekeeping in a piece of cloth. For notice what he says, I was afraid of you. Literally, I was paralyzed with fear. Because you are a severe man. Literally, the word severe here means rigid or uncompromising. You withdraw what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. He has a very unflattering concept of the king. The king said to him, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked slave. So you knew, did you, that I was a severe man, withdrawing what I didn't deposit, reaping what I didn't sow. Why then didn't you put my money in the bank at least, so that when I returned, I could have collected even that with interest? By the way, the word interest is an interesting Greek word. It literally means with offspring. Something that multiplies. And he said to his attendants, take the mina from him. Now notice. The one who's been unfaithful gets what he even had been given and it's taken away. If you don't use it, you're going to end up losing it. That's important. And who does God give that to? He gives it to the one who has ten. Why? Because he knows that one's reliable. That one's dependable. That one's faithful. And they even said, but they said to him, sir, he's got 10 already. Jesus said, I tell you that everyone who has will be given more. (laughs) You, you do well with what I give you. I'll always give you more. Jesus always wants his people to be encouraged that he wants to give them greater responsibility and, and greater, uh, impact and, and and greater trust, but we have to earn it through being faithful. But he says, from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And then in verse 27, as for these enemies of mine, the ones who did not want me to be king, bring them here and slaughter them in front of me. I think Jesus here is predicting that in a few years, in 70 AD, the Roman emperor Titus will march the Roman legions through the city of Jerusalem, and just as he will predict in a few days later, there will not be one stone left upon another in Jerusalem. The Roman armies will level. Why? Because they rejected their king. Verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he continued on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. There again is that phrase. That was always the goal. Jesus' destiny was to be in Jerusalem. Now, when he approached Bethpage and Bethany as the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples telling them, go to the village ahead of you. And when you enter it, you will find a colt tied there that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you are untying it, just say, the Lord needs it. First of all, this passage is a fulfillment of Scripture. Zechariah 9.9 says the Messiah, the King, will enter Jerusalem on a colt. Humbly. But I want you to notice this in this passage. As Jesus is getting ready to present himself as the Messiah to the Jewish nation, notice that he is reminding everyone around him he knows everything. How did Jesus know there would be a cult there? 
How did he know where to go to get the coal? Because he's the Lord. He's the Son of God. And notice something. Jesus doesn't tell his followers to go and ask the owner if it's okay to take the colt. You know how we say it's better sometimes to ask for forgiveness and ask permission? Well, in a sense, Jesus is just telling them, you go and take it. You don't ask them if it's okay. If they ask you why you're doing it, if they're asking you for the explanation, then all you tell them is the Lord needs it. Because Jesus here is wanting his followers to see, I'm in total control here. That even though I'm going to suffer and die on the cross, and it's going to look like Satan and all the, the, the evilness of hell is going to win, and somehow God is not on the throne, and God is not in control, Jesus, even up to the very end, continues to try to even show his followers, I'm in complete control of everything that's going on around me. And Jesus wants you to know that as well. He's in complete control of your life. He's in complete control of your circumstances. He's in complete control of everything that's going on around you. And though your life may seem like it's in chaos now, Jesus is on the throne. The Lord needs it. The Lord wants to make use of it. Why? Because He's the Lord. Everything in the universe, is the Lord's. Therefore, if the Lord has need of something, He has every right, as the creator of the universe, as the Lord of the universe, to use whatever He wants. It's all His. So the question is, what does God want need of right now in your life? God's not asking you for permission. (laughs) He's asking all of us to surrender. Because he's the Lord. If he needs us, we are to be a living sacrifice. We are to place our bodies as living sacrifice. If he needs us for whatever, he's the Lord. Whatever he needs, he has the right to use it. So those who were sent ahead found it exactly as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt. Its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And guess what? That was it, right? You don't find out that the owners were like, the Lord needs it. Come on. No, it was like, the Lord needs it. Okay. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and as Jesus got on it, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and as he approached the road, leading down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of his disciples began to rejoice and sing praise to God. The reason I put sing praise is there's different words for praise. This word means to sing. Again, we need to sing. You guys are singing good, by the way. I enjoyed your singing tonight. Notice they were praising God with a small No. Loud voice. For all the mighty works they had seen. Literally for all the strength, power, and ability of God that they had seen and been witness to. They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. Glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I love Jesus' response. 
He says, I tell you, if they, my followers, keep silent, the very stones will cry out. By the way, the words cry out mean to shout out loudly. You know, there's a part of me that almost wishes the disciples would have shut up. I would have loved to seen the stones cry out. And what would have been the Pharisees' reaction? And it reminds us again that he's Lord of creation. Creation understands something that many human beings don't. He's the creator. He deserves our praise. We should sing praise to him. We should celebrate him. We should elevate. We should magnify him. He's the creator. And yet many times the human beings that he created don't understand what even the rocks understand. I could go on, but I won't. Verse 41. When Jesus approached and saw the city, he wept over it. There's different words for see in the New Testament as well, but in verse 41, the word saw, when it says Jesus approached and saw, literally means to care for. I love that. It reminds us, even with us, sometimes in our seeing, it goes way beyond physical seeing. You and I all know that there can be people or situations or things that we can actually physically see with our eyes, and it stirs something in our heart. Even seeing someone we love or a friend or someone we deeply care for, when we see them, there's more than just a physical reaction. There's an emotional reaction to that. That's what's happening with Jesus. He literally is mourning in pain and grief over the city, saying, if you had only known on this day, even you, the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus is basically saying, you weren't acquainted with the fact that if you want to have peace with God, you can't reject me. No, no human being can reject Jesus Christ and expect peace with God. No human being, even Christian, can push Jesus Christ away and experience the peace of God that passes all understanding. The only way we can experience God's peace is by, like Zacchaeus, welcoming Jesus into our life and into our home and giving Him access and fellowshipping with Him. That's how you and I experience peace. But not only do we see the love of Jesus here and feel the rejection that Jesus was experiencing. We also see his holiness. Because once again, as he did in verse 27, I believe in verse 43 and 44, he is predicting what's going to happen in 70 AD when the Roman soldiers come through and destroy the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. He says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and surround you and close you in from every side. They're literally going to choke the city to death. They will demolish you 
You and your children within your walls, they will not leave within you one stone on top of another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. The word visitation here means spiritual opportunity. They did not seize the spiritual opportunity they had. Jesus himself, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, was standing right in front of them and they didn't know who he was. And that spiritual opportunity was going to leave. And as a nation, obviously there were individual Jews that embraced Jesus as their Messiah. But as a nation, they rejected Jesus. And because they rejected Jesus, God's judgment was going to fall on the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel has now experienced, in a sense, God's judgment for several thousand years. And it will not be until Daniel's 70th week... The great tribulation period after the rapture of the church when God turns his attention for one more seven year period back to the nation of Israel. People reject Jesus at their own peril. Verse 45. We see the authority of God's servant. Then Jesus entered the temple courts and began to drive out those who were selling things there, saying to them, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. The word drive out here means to deprive of power and influence. Jesus, in a sense, was sucking all the power and influence out of the thieves within the temple complex. Now let me, let me say a few, I think, important words at this point. There, there have been many Christians who've interpreted this verse and they've come to this application. Christians should not buy or sell anything inside the church. I don't think that that has anything to do with what Jesus is doing here. What Jesus is, is doing here is remember, he's calling them thieves. In Jesus' day, when you went to Jerusalem as a Jew, you had to have a sacrifice. And instead of people, especially from great distances, having to bring animals from great distances to Jerusalem for great sacrifice, they had set up a system that within the temple courts, you could go, and instead of having to lug an animal from your hometown over great distance, you could just buy an animal right there. Oh, and by the way, because the animal had to be an animal that was without spot or blemish, most of the animals that people would bring from outside were judged by the religious leaders as not being up to snuff. So you're going to have to buy one of our animals. Because only our animals are stamped USDA. Only our animals meet the without spot and blemish that you need for sacrifice. And oh, by the way, because you're sort of over a barrel, we're going to take the normal price for that lamb and we're going to jack it up. Because you need a sacrifice and we're the only game in town. So we're going to take advantage of people coming to worship God and pat our own pockets. That's what was happening here. Not people just selling things to each other. 
These people were literally taking the requirement of the Mosaic law and they were turning it and twisting it into an opportunity for financial gain for themselves. And that's what so angered Jesus. They totally were missing the whole intent of the sacrificial system. And they had manipulated it so that they could get rich off of it. And Jesus says, this is my house. And my house will be known as a house of prayer. By the way, I've shared this with you before. The word prayer here means to be situated by a continual supply. I love that picture. It's as if, it's as if you're, you're literally always sitting by a stream or a river. And you always have that continual supply right there. That's the picture of prayer that God wants Christians to understand. There's always a supply there from God to us when we pray. And He wants His people to know that as they come to His house. And then verse 47, Jesus was teaching daily in the temple courts. The primary thing Jesus did in the last couple weeks of His life before He died on the cross was teach the Word of God. That's what He primarily did the last couple weeks of His life. The chief priests and the experts in the law and the prominent leaders among the people were seeking to assassinate him. But they could not find a way to do it for all the people hung on his words. I love that. The word literally means to be suspended by the hung. In other words, you get the idea that really what the Word is saying here is that Jesus gave them such strong words, such strong, confident, assuring words, that they were able to stick something on it and hang it there, and it would stick. That's what the Word of God can do in our life. We can put our whole life on the hook of God's Word, and it will keep us up. We can hang a situation. We can hang a person. We can hang anything. We can suspend anything on the Word of God because it's strong enough to hold it up. And that's what Jesus was doing here. He was giving people the Word of God so that they had something to hang their life and their life situations on. That's why it's so important that we as Christians get into the Word of God. We read it. We study it. We meditate on it. That we go to a church that teaches the Word of God so that we have something to hang on to during the week when the storms of life come. Luke 19 is a picture of the servant of God who's on his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross for our sins. But before he gets there, many important things. He wants to share with us his purpose. He wants to warn us. He wants to present himself as the Messiah. We see what happens when he's rejected, and yet we see the authority of the Son of God throughout this as well. Hopefully this passage tonight has blessed your life as much as it did mine. Before we wrap up with prayer, I just want to also encourage you guys with just some 
some really cool things. Um, I think as of Sunday, we have over 40 men signed up to go to lunch on the 24th. And we still got a Sunday to go. So, guys, I'm, I'm thinking we're going to have like 50 men going that day at least, which is really cool. And also, don't forget gals that day that there's going to be uh, something for you that Marsha would love to talk with you all about. Whether you're a young mother and you've got children, we understand that dynamic. Uh, but for those of you that don't, there's going to be a couple different options there on the 24th. So a great time to connect. And tonight, I just felt led of the Lord to let you folks know about this first, before I even announce it beginning on Sunday. We believe, as leaders, that God is giving our church a great opportunity to be a light to a small group within our community. Um, in a couple weeks, we're actually going to have the leader of foster group homes for the state of Arizona come and share this ministry with us at the Oasis. And we want to let our church family know about this because I really, really think that this is a ministry that's not going to be for necessarily everybody in our church, but it has so many different layers to it and opportunities to it that I know our church, I think, and know you folks well enough to know, I think many people are going to embrace this. It's going to be something that in our missions program we're going to add to the park ministry. And at least for now, it's not going to take the place of produce with a purpose, but it's going to give us another outlet to be able to shine our light and share our faith. I'm just going to briefly share this with you, and, and you'll hear more about it. One of the things that just so struck all of us as we got into this as leaders was just not realizing the need. Do you realize, I did not realize this, that just in the Phoenix area alone, there are 11,000 teenagers in foster group homes? 11,000. Meaning that they basically have no one in their life. That if they had parents, their parents gave up all parental rights. And that they live in these homes, and when they get to be 18 years of age, they are aged out of the program. They are sent out of those homes with the clothes on their back and a few, uh, of a few things maybe in a bag. And, and statistics tell us that within one year, 80% either end up in jail or in prostitution. We believe we can change that one home at a time. And we are going to begin to adopt a home. Now, there may be enough people that get on board with this that down the road we can adopt more than one home. But as you know, at the Oasis, one thing that we want to value is when we dive into something and take something on, we want to do it well. And I would rather us, let's, let's see how well we do with this one home of 8 to 10 teens before we would maybe branch out. The reason I think that this is a great opportunity is for this reason. Some of you may really have the desire to literally go into that home and minister to those kids one-on-one -on -one throughout the week. They don't have anybody that looks out for them. 
You may want to go in and play games with them. You may want to share something. You may want to go in and lead a Bible study once a week. You may want to go in and help them with their homework. Those are all endless opportunities with each one of them in the home. Secondly, there may be many of you go, working with troubled teens is not my bag. But I would like to support the home. Guess what? The staff needs supported. And maybe you go, I don't think I could do teens, but I would like to go in maybe every once in a while and I'd like to support the staff, the people that work with those teens all the time. And maybe make that something of a ministry. Maybe go in and help them cook a meal once a week or something like that. And then there's always the opportunities to just physically provide for these kids. I was shocked to realize just what they don't have. These kids would think that they were given a million dollars by getting some underwear of their own. Many times in these homes, they have to share underwear. They don't even have a good pair of shoes. And again, I know folks in this church well enough to know I'll take those kids out and buy them a pair of shoes. That's something I can do. I already know. This is really cool. In the last couple weeks before I've even started talking about this, I had two couples come up to me who are part of our Oasis family say, Jeff, I want you to be praying about something. My wife and I are thinking about becoming foster parents. I just went, oh my goodness. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Guess what? You might have that opportunity sooner than you know. So there, again, I don't want to... Endless opportunities here. You're going to hear more about it. You're going to be able to ask questions. You're going to be able to get more information. Some of you are going to go, is there training involved? Yes. For those of you that want to do in-house, there's going to be a little bit more required. For those of you that want to do something off-site, for instance... One of the things we're definitely going to do with this home is we're going to invite them to church. And we want them to come and be a part of our church family. We want to, we want to share with them the love of Christ. We want to show them what Christianity is all about. We obviously have potlucks during the year. We want to invite them especially to stay for our potlucks and become part of our church family. So, endless opportunities. One of the great things that the leader of of this told us is that if you can dream it, you can do it. So it's pretty much up to how we as a church want to do this. But I really believe that this is an opportunity that God is laying at our doorstep. And I think he's saying, Oasis, you have become a loving church family. You care for each other, you love each other, but now it's time to begin to think about taking that love like we do with the park ministry and other ministries that you do. And now it's time to start taking that love outside these walls and start impacting our community a little bit more. And this is something that we can do with great intentionality and great purpose. So I'm excited to share this even more as the weeks come along. I hope you'll pray about it. Maybe, again, it's not a ministry that you personally would like to get involved with. But if nothing else, you can support us with prayer. Speaking of prayer, let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for the love that you have given to us. 
We thank you for just filling up our lives with your presence, with your joy, with your peace, with your power and strength. And God, you, you ask of us, the, the reason you left us behind and didn't just immediately take us to heaven when we became a Christian was because you wanted us to be salt and light. You wanted us to make an impact on this earth. You wanted our li- lives to shine for you. And so, God, I'm, I'm praying that this year would be such a significant year where this great, close-knit, loving, caring family that we are continuing to assemble and add more and more people as the weeks go on, that, Lord, we would continue to do that and continue to see our hearts knit together. But, God, as you continue to make us tight with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, that, Lord, we would even be more intentional about looking outside of ourselves and taking the love and taking, Lord, the gospel and taking taking God's life-changing message and all of that out to those who are lost because, God, you came to seek and save the lost. Help us to have that heart for the lost as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God, sorry, guys, sorry I have kept you over tonight. Thanks for being here. We'll see you on Sunday.